Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. My name is Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. On today's episode, I'm going to be speaking with relationship expert, Dr. Gary Lewandowski. He is a professor at Monmouth University and author of the new book, Stronger Than You Think, The 10 Blind Spots That Undermine Your Relationship and How to See Past Them. We're going to be talking about how to boost your relationship IQ in this episode. It is often said that the most important decision you make in your life is who you decide to have a relationship with. Yet, most of us are never really taught anything about how to make this decision. I mean, I certainly never had a course on this in school, and I had to figure it out all on my own. And I'm sure that most of you listening had a similar experience. So think of this episode as a crash course in relationship education. We're going to be exploring common things that people tend to get wrong about relationships and sex, and how to change your mindset so that you can cultivate a happier and healthier love life. This is going to be an amazing conversation, so let's get to it. Hi, Gary, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hey, Justin. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining me. Now, before we dive into your new book, I always like to begin by asking my guests about their professional journey. Now, I know that you've long had an interest in taking relationship research and translating it for the public in a way that they can use. And in fact, that's how you and I first connected. Both of us were contributors to the Science of Relationships website about a decade ago, which is really where I got my start in blogging about sex and relationship research. But what's the backstory for you? How did you come to be a scientist who studies the psychology of romantic relationships in the first place? And, you know, where did that interest in translating it for the public come from? Yeah, you know, it's kind of what you said is, you know, how to go around figuring it out yourself. And so as a college student, I, like a lot of psychology majors, thought I was going to be a clinician. I thought I was going to go into therapy and kind of pursue that very typical career path. But, you know, as a junior, I had a internship that just kind of opened my eyes and, and made me realize that, you know, I was willing to put in a lot of work and my clients weren't always willing to put in the same amounts of work. And so entering my senior year as a college student, I had this kind of crisis of like, what the hell am I going to do with my life? So I met with my advisor at the time and she said, you know, well, what do you like? Like, what do you do? And, you know, I was a typical college student and I kind of just like jokingly said, well, I'm into like relationships, like trying to figure out how to get into them and sometimes how to get out of them and like, you know, and all that kind of thing. And I just kind of jokingly said, well, you know, but you can't study that. And she said, no, 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 you, you can actually study that. Like, cause you know, at the time there was no course, like we had a lot of site courses, but we didn't have a course in relationships. And so that's how I got started. And so I, I applied to work with, you know, some of the top people in relationship research. I ended up working with Dr. Art Aaron out at Stony Brook in Long Island. And went to grad school. And that was the first time I, I read a research article about relationships or had any kind of information about relationships. And I was astounded then, and I still kind of am, by the fact that there's so much information about relationships out there in these scientific journals that the world just knows nothing about. I don't I mean, part of it was that realization, but you, you kind of asked, like, how did I develop this interest in translating? Um, and I think that's a really good word, translating this empirical information that's published in these journals into like this format that like real people can use. And I think at least for me, like 
I, I was the first one in my, in my family to go to college. Like I have a very blue collar background. And so part of that blue collar background was this like suspicion of college and academia and academics. And it was like, do you really, like how useful is that information you're learning in school? Like, I think, so I've always had this like really deep appreciation for making things useful. You know, my students will tell you, you know, the number one question I ask them all the time when they come up with a research idea is like, so what? Like, who, who is this going to help? And so like those kind of filter questions have always kind of helped guide me in, in sort of my purpose, which is, you know, trying to help use science to help people lead better lives. And so, you know, what better way than through relationships? Well, I can relate to everything that you said, and, and thank you for sharing that. And, you know, it is so true that the scientific articles that relationship researchers write, you know, the average person reading them, it's just, they're not going to get anything out of it. And I do know a lot of grad students over the years who have been kind of frustrated with the process where they're writing these papers and they're like, what? what's the point of this? You know, what is the broader impact of it? And so I think that's where there's really a lot of value in having that translation. And I know that that's a lot of what you do in your book, which is titled Stronger Than You Think. But I wanted to ask a question about it before we kind of do the deeper dive into it, which is that your book falls into the self-help category for relationships. And that's obviously a pretty crowded marketplace. There are lots of books out there on the subject. So what do you think sets your book apart and makes it stand out from the others? Yeah, it's a great question. It's a question that my agent had, and it's a question that the publishers have had. And I think the thing that ultimately led the book to, to come to market is it is different in the sense that, you know, I think there's in the final draft, there is over 350 research article citations that have found their way into the book, which is almost an unprecedented amount of science packed into a book about relationships. But when you read the book, you're not going to feel like you're reading a book that's inundated with science. Right. It, it's a little bit of this like broccoli hidden in a brownie approach where, you know, there's a lot of really good stuff in there, but it's, it's like encapsulated in this, you know, very lighthearted kind of the way I teach it. it. It's very like down to earth and engaging, but, you know, you almost accidentally learn a bunch along the way. And, and that's, that's kind of something that I don't think anybody's really been able to pull off that well, because I, I think traditionally the people that know the most of most of the science are hardcore researchers. Um, and I would not call myself a hardcore researcher by any stretch. I am, you know, a, a teacher, educator, speaker first. So, you know, my skill, my best skill is really taking complex ideas and making them simple and understandable. And so, you know, it kind of goes back to the idea of like just being a translator. I don't know if any, you know, how many other authors of research kinds of self-help books have fit that kind of role. When we've kind of gone the more researcher route those books kind of end up a little bit more esoteric, a little bit more in the weeds a little bit. And I really, I tried really, really hard to, to, to very much, you know, big picture, kind of that, so what, how's this going to actually help real people? And so in that way, it, it's different than what's out there. Yeah, and I think you do it really well. And you're so right that so many of the self-help books fall into one of two camps. One is where they're just so dry and boring and too clinical or too heavy on the research where you, you just it's not engaging enough to really keep people motivated to read through all the way and then on the other end you've got a lot of people who are writing books where they're just 
doling out their own advice based on their personal right. experiences. And it's not based in right. research at all. And, you right. know, I think there's some value in learning about how, you know, other people approach things. But, you know, there's a risk when you've got one person who's saying, this was my experience and this is applicable and generalizable to everyone. Because, you know, that one person might be really unique and their advice might not be applicable to every person who's reading. So I think you do a nice job of sort of straddling both of those worlds of making it engaging while also having it very based in science and research. Thank you for that. And I think, you know, particularly when it comes to relationships, this is really important because people think, well, I've had relationships, so I have expertise in relationships. And, you know, as you know, from as a fellow scientist, like experience isn't the same thing as expertise. You know, and you, you kind of point out like a sample of one is still one and it's, you're one weird person. You're idiosyncratic in a bunch of ways that you don't really fully understand. And so the benefit that we have is larger samples. We get a bunch, we get a bunch of samples of one. And so we have hundreds and then, you know, start putting it together thousands and thousands. And so, you know, if you really want the best possible information, you got to collect it from a, a bunch of people. And that's, it's really the only way to do it. Totally agree. So let's dive into some of the common false beliefs about relationships that you tackle in your book. And one of them is this popular idea of a soulmate, you know, that one perfect person with whom you're destined to be with. Now, public opinion polls show that a majority of Americans today believe in the idea of a soulmate. And depending on the poll that you consult, it's between two-thirds and three-quarters who say that they believe in that. But you say that that might actually be a bad approach to relationships. So why is that? Well, you know, I, I think the data shows that this idea of soulmates and being this perfect kind of relationship set up, it, it's much more mythical than magical. You know, we, we like this idea of having this one and only person, but in reality, it ends up not being super helpful for our relationship. The problem with a soulmate is, you know, if you're, if you're fully into that is you get one. And so if you end up with that one person who is your soulmate and they end up treating you poorly, you're, you're stuck, right? So now I have to, you know, oh my gosh, this is my soulmate. This is the only one I get. This person's not treating me very well. Now what do you do? And so, you know, worst case, I think, is you, you kind of stick it out and just, you know, insist like you're my soulmate. This is how it's going to be, which is problematic because that, that's not the relationship you really deserve. Or you kind of, you know, as soon as you see signs of trouble, the other way to approach your soulmate problem is like, wait a second, if my soulmate and I, that I get one of is supposed to be so perfect and you're showing any sign of flaws, I must have the wrong soulmate. You must not be the right one. And so now I need to get rid of you and go searching for my real soulmate. It's funny talking to someone else who knows all this research too, but as you know, it's, that's not how relationships work, right? I mean, relationships aren't about perfection. I mean, there's no such thing as a perfect partner. We're all flawed. And so looking for this person that's like this, you know, oh my gosh, soulmate, the best thing ever, you know, you're looking for something that probably doesn't exist. Yeah, it's an unrealistic expectation. And this is something I talk about in my own book a little bit too, you know, why you should ditch the idea of a soulmate. And, you know, the research shows that people who have that really strong belief in relationship destiny, that there's that one perfect person out there, they have a much harder time finding relationship happiness and having a stable relationship. And it's really important, I think, to approach relationships with a growth mindset. That doesn't mean you can't believe in the idea of a soulmate at all, but that has to be coupled with this idea that good relationships are cultivated over time and that they require work and effort. They're not easy. They're not 
perfect and, you know, striving for perfection is not realistic. Yeah. And I think, you know, if people want to believe that their partner is their soulmate, as you point out, a lot of people do, maybe that they believe that after they've had this growth mindset and they find this person they're willing to grow with, and that then becomes their definition of a soulmate. I mean, in that way, it's not such a bad thing. But if you're really looking for this perfection, you're going to ride this relationship roller coaster where early in every relationship, when you don't know that much, right? when you have the least amount of data, it's easy to make that other person seem pretty darn perfect. right? So it's like, hey, we're great. And then it's like, as you get to know them, it's like, uh-oh, not a soulmate, not a soulmate. And you know, then you get into the next relationship and it's like, oh, I found it this time. And you're just going to keep going, vacillating back and forth and back and forth. And you know, you end up constantly on the lookout for this thing that doesn't exist and you know, kind of setting yourself up for failure. Yeah, I guess the way I like to think about a soulmate is that I think of it as the person who motivates you to want to work on your relationship. You know, it's the person who's worth the effort. And, you know, there's going to be some amount of sacrifice involved in that. And speaking of sacrifice, you know, that's another topic that you talk about in your book. And you talk about how, you know, we often hear that one of the keys to a good relationship is being willing to sacrifice your own self-interest for the sake of that relationship. And, you know, that was something that was discussed a lot in the courses on relationships I took in graduate school. And, you know, willingness to sacrifice was touted as one of the keys to relationship success. But you argue that too much sacrifice can actually backfire and that being a little bit selfish in your relationship can actually be a good thing. So can you tell us a little bit more about that idea? Yeah, this is actually, if there was one thing that I was the most surprised about was finding this particular research because, you know, much like you, you kind of always hear this idea of like, give, like, you know, love is about being giving and sacrificing towards your partner. And it's like, one of the things we always forget is like, just how romantic we are in our society. You know, this North American, you know, we have a very romanticized view of relationships. And so this like, I will give all of myself to you. And that's how, you know, we're going to make this thing work. Sounds like ideal. Like that, that sounds like what we should do. But I found this, found research showing that, you know, Sacrifice is helpful in building commitment, which sounds great. Like, so I give, we now become more and more tethered together. Like, you know, this, this bond is strong, but what it doesn't do is make us happier and more satisfied, which sounds like a problem, right? It's like, so now we're getting more and more committed to something that's not necessarily making us happy, right? The other thing is that, you know, this sacrifice was only beneficial on days when you weren't all that stressed, which I don't know about you, but I don't have too many of those days, right? I mean, like life, life just has this way, like we're, we're, I don't know, we're kind of in this perpetual state of stress. So it's hard to like really, I guess, sort of leverage those sacrifices in a way that's helpful. The other piece that makes sacrifice kind of tricky is that the person who's supposed to benefit from that sacrifice, our partner, right? They end up not benefiting because they miss at least half of the sacrifices we make for them. Right. And it's not because they're clueless and mean. And it's not, it's just, it's hard to pick up on all these things. Right. A lot of the sacrifices you make aren't really overt. It's some of the things you didn't say or didn't do. It's like all this invisible stuff, right. That they have no awareness of. But now the problem is you're aware of 100% of the things that you sacrificed. Your partner's only giving you credit for about one out of every two. Right. And so now, I mean, it's a recipe for resentment look at all the things I do for you. You don't appreciate this. And it's so as much as sacrifice can be helpful, sort of those 
unrecognized sacrifices can also be problematic in a way that I don't think we always fully realize. And so this idea of like constantly giving and giving and giving is, is this idea of being very selfless. But what I argue in the book is, you know, it's okay to be selfish. Like your partner should want you to take care of yourself. And the more you take care of yourself, you're going to feel good. And then your partner should feel good seeing you do well for yourself, right? And that, that's, that's part, part of partner support, right? And so those things go hand in hand. Yeah, and this reminds me of a conversation I had with Amy Muse on an earlier episode where we talked about, you know, the role of sacrifice in relationships and how, you know, some amount of it is good and healthy, right? But when you sacrifice too much, you're compromising yourself. And that's how you end up getting lost in a relationship. And, you know, that creates its own set of problems. And there has to be this mutual sacrifice, this mutual give and take in order for things to work. And both partners have to be willing to sacrifice to some extent, but they also both need to be a little bit selfish and pay attention to their own needs. And I think that's true both in bed and out of bed. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the things I say in the book, you know, I, I kind of set up each chapter where I like introduce the problem at the beginning and then the solution at the end. And the, the solution, I think, to, you know, this kind of nuance of sacrifice is the sacrifices you make need to be mutual and they need to be minor, right? You shouldn't be giving up your whole sense of self. You can fall into this pattern of something called self-silencing, we are really completely forsaking who you are as a person to try to benefit the relationship. And as much as, you know, you are making the ultimate sacrifice. So really the payoff should be this, this tremendous benefit. And it's just, that doesn't happen. It actually makes things worse. Um, yeah. And so, you know, two people being a little bit selfish with support from their counterpart is really the ideal. Yeah. Sacrifice should be mutual and minor. I think that's a really good way to put it. And I think something that's going to challenge people to think a little bit differently about how they do this in their own relationships. Now, you mentioned how we have these romanticized ideas of love that, you know, often don't work out so well. So related to that, something else that you talk about in your book is how this idea of having a little bit of distance in your relationship is actually a good thing, which stands in contrast to how a lot of people view relationships. You know, many of us think of a good relationship as being this complete merging of two people or that idea of when two become one. And again, you know, it sounds really romantic, sounds great, but you argue that it's a potential sign of trouble. So why is that? Yeah, I mean, part of it, you have to be independent, right? I mean, you have to have your own sense of self. And if, if you start blending and merging too much with your partner, you lose your own sense of identity. So it, it kind of falls back into that sacrifice idea. The other piece is, you know, closeness is cognitive, where we're kind of, you know, blending, you know, who I am as a person with who my partner is as a person. But it's also this behavioral closeness as well as just, you know, how much time we spend together. And so, you know, we, we had sort of a crash course in that over the pandemic with, with spending a lot more time with our partners than we ever anticipated, <laughs> which <laughs> has its benefits because, you know, our partner is kind of our, our best friend. They're our number one. And so we get to spend a lot of time with them. But then we also kind of realized like, wow, we kind of went from like not spending enough time to now spending maybe too much time. And like, there's got to be something in between. And so what we do know from other, just other areas of research is taking a break enhances enjoyment. Right. And so I talk about in the book this uh, research on massage, right? And you wouldn't think that has much to do with relationships and, cl and closeness, but what they find is giving people massages. One group kind of goes through and does their massage, you know, start to finish. Another group halfway takes a break, right? The ones that take a break, the ones that have that pause, that little bit of distance in the middle, 
end up liking their overall massage experience better. And so, you know, I, I think there's a kernel of wisdom in that for our relationships is that, you know, enjoy your time together, right? While your massages or otherwise, right? But then, you know, be willing to spend that time apart because then it lets you kind of savor and miss your partner, right? And some research I did with a couple of colleagues, Ben Lee and Tim Loving, you know, missing is a real important part of maintaining commitment. Like you want to have a chance to miss your partner a little bit. People worry about long distance relationships. Long distance relationships aren't nearly as bad as, as many people think. In a lot of ways, they're quite strong, right? Because they're based on a lot of, you know, high quality aspects of relationships, you know, it's not as much based on physical things, but then you do get a good chance to miss your partner. And so you kind of realize, you know, it's harder to take things for granted when you have those pauses and that distance and a chance to miss your partner. And that's, that's one of like one of the meta messages of, of, of my book is that, you know, we have to stop taking the good for granted and really, you know, appreciate what we have. Yeah. And I appreciate especially what you say about long distance relationships, because I know so many people who say, oh, that never works. Right. And their idea is just that a relationship can't survive that much distance. But what we see in the research, in fact, I was just reading a paper earlier this morning that finds no difference in relationship quality for people who are in long distance relationships and those who are geographically close. And so, you know, we need to rethink this idea of, you know, how much closeness and how much distance do we really need in our relationships and what is optimal? And of course, there's going to be different answers for different people, but it's okay to have some distance. It's okay to have some me time and, you know, time to explore your own interests. And you don't have to have that complete merging of self and other in order to have a successful and happy relationship. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we know about relationships that helps keep them going is novel, interesting, and challenging experiences. And so we can have those together, certainly. But if you as my partner are going off and having new and interesting experiences, and I am separately having new and interesting experiences, now when we get back together and spend time together, we have two completely different sets of new and interesting experiences that we can share with each other. And because we're connected as partners and we include our senses of selves in each other, now I get to benefit from your experiences, you get to benefit from mine, and we're both better, more self-expanded people as a result, which is, right? I mean, that, that's why relationships are so powerful. Yeah, but it has me thinking about how some people in that situation would have so much FOMO, like, oh, my partner's going out and doing this and they're, they're having this experience without me. But, you know, we, we need to rethink that. We need to allow our partners to have some space, some time to be themselves, to pursue their own interests, to have new and different experiences. Because as you said, that can come back and benefit the relationship as a whole. And yeah, so it's it's just a different way of thinking about this. So another thing that you discuss in your book is this idea of the fixer-upper partner. Mm-hmm. Someone that you think has great potential, but they need to change a lot in order to make things work. But you say that getting a fixer-upper is probably a bad idea and that it might be easier and healthier to focus more on changing yourself rather than trying to change someone else. So can you tell us a little bit more about that idea? Yeah, I, mean, I think this is like one of those relationship ideas that gets passed down almost generationally where it's like you, you see, you know, well, mo- mom and dad, you know, mom has really worked hard on dad to make dad a better person kind of thing. And it's like, you know, relationships should, your relationship partner should help you become a better person, but it, it shouldn't be like mom, like kind of whittling away at dad and really like, you know, getting him to like finally be the person she wants to be. Right. And so we kind of see this and we, we, we take on this attitude of, 
not only do I need to find a partner, but then once I find my partner, part of my job or responsibility is to help them become the person I want them to be. Because I know that that's better for them. And if you think about that, now when you're the one doing the fixing your offer, it, it, it's presumptuous. Like, who are you to know what's best for your partner, right? And it, like, you still might think, oh, but I'm, I'm really trying to help them. But if you flip it around and take it from the target that's being fixed up, basically what your, your partner is saying to you is like, I will love you if you do X, Y, and Z. You need to be better at this. You need to do this differently. You need to have this new hobby or interest. And so it's building in a lot of conditional love, which is the opposite of what we want, right? We want people to love us for who we are unconditionally, right? And that's, you want people to love you for that reason. Your partner deserves you to love them unconditionally as well. Now, the other reason that this is a problem is that even though your heart's in the right place and you're really trying to help your partner be a better person, maybe your partner even wants to uh, on some level. The problem is when we go about doing it, we're not good at it, right? And so what we end up doing to try to help our partner get better is a, a bunch of like really poor implementation strategies like you know nagging, being irritated at them, frustrated, withholding sex as a punishment. I mean, there's a whole bunch of things you can kind of do to kind of, you know, manipulate and cajole your partner into being the kind of person you want them to be. And we know all those things are problematic, right? That, that all those things undermine relationship quality. Now, so you might think, well, I, I would never do any of those things. Like, I'm, I'm not going to be a jerk and, and, you know, nag my partner to death to make them a better person. I took a psych class once. What I'm going to do is just reward all of their good behavior. I'm going to ignore the bad. I'm going to be like a good behavioral analyst. And I'm just going to ignore the bad. And I'm just going to reward the good. Okay, that's better. Like we know from the research, that is better for the relationship, but it's still not ideal because it's again sending this message to your partner that my love for you is conditional. Like if you're a good boy, I will do these nice things for you. But if you're not, sorry, I'm not, not going to be able to help you. And that's where, you know, this idea of this fixer upper partner, no, no, you don't want to be the fixer upper. You don't want to be the fixer upper E, right? I mean, like just, just you should love each other for who you are. And that's, you know, where the best relationships come from. Yeah. And so if you're somebody who finds yourself saying, if you love me, you'll change frequently in your relationships, you know, that's the sign of some potential problems there. And maybe that you need to rethink the way that you're approaching relationships because, you know, it just often doesn't work out well to really focus on trying to change another person and turn them into somebody totally different that we want them to be. Because that often, like we said, just doesn't work out well. It's one of those things, like we know perspective taking is so important in relationships. And it's one of those opportunities to really kind of flip it around. And like, what if your partner said, you know, I would love you more if you were more talkative. And like, you just, you're just not a talkative person. Like that becomes really hard. And it, it's like, you fundamentally don't like something about who I am as a person and how hard that is going to be to change. We know personality things are, are difficult to change. And the research shows they only get harder and harder as you get older, right? So it's like, if you're in a longer term relationship and you're like, okay, it didn't work the first five years, maybe in the next five years, I can get my partner to be more this way. No, not going to happen, right? And so, you know, relationships aren't between two people who are perfect. It's, you know, you have to be perfect for each other and, and be willing to work through some of those problems together. Yeah, very well put. Now, we have much more to discuss, including common things people get wrong about sex, 
why it's important to have disagreements with your partner, and why breakups aren't usually as bad as we think they're going to be. But first, a quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode of the Sex and Psychology podcast is brought to you by our friends over at Promescent. Promescent is here to help you get better in bed. Check out their Vitaflux supplements, which aim to enhance sexual health by increasing libido, sexual desire, and orgasm satisfaction in men and women alike. Vitaflux can also help to increase erection strength in men and vaginal lubrication in women. Promescent's other sexual wellness products include their signature delay spray, which can help men last longer in bed, a female arousal gel that heightens sensitivity, and a line of personal lubricants that come in several varieties. Promescent offers a 60-day money-back guarantee on all orders and free shipping on orders over $10. Also, all orders come in discreet packaging to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place your order at promescent.com. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T dot com. And we're back. My guest today is Dr. Gary Lewandowski, author of the new book, Stronger Than You Think. Now, you say that we often worry too much about sex and relationships, especially in terms of how often we do it. And I totally agree because I see this fixation on sexual frequency come up all the time in questions from readers and listeners. And they say they're not having as much sex as they used to, or it seems like they're having a lot less sex than everyone else. And so they're distressed because they think that having this very active sex life is one of the main indicators of a healthy relationship. So what's the problem with that line of thinking? And is there an optimal amount of sex that couples should be having or should be looking to have? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I I think, you know, first, I, I can't necessarily blame people for fixating so much on frequency of sex because of all the things that are going on in our relationship, right, all the variables that go into a quality relationship, Frequency of sex is probably the easiest one to notice and count, right? And so it's this thing that it's like, even if we don't want to notice it and count it, we just can't help but doing those two things. So it's just, it's an easily quantifiable variable in in a relationship. That said, it's like one of the worst indicators of how a relationship is going. You know, we know from tons and tons of research that it just, there's no correlation, right? Sexual frequency, relationship quality, you know, it, it doesn't really go together. If anything, and this is one of the interesting studies I found that, that was surprising to me, couples that focus more on frequency of sex actually tend to have worse relationships. And that women, particularly it was, it was wives in the study, the, when they felt less in love, they were more inclined to initiate sex. So it was like, th- for them, when the relationship was having problems, that's when it was like, oh, the solution here is sexual frequency. That's going to help patch things up. And so, you know, if all of a sudden you're having more sex, you might be thinking, this is great. Like, all this, my relationship is better than it's ever been. And actually, it could be the exact opposite. Now, one of the problems that sometimes people will have with these sexual frequency studies is like, well, there's a lot of other things going on in the relationship. And so, you know, the, we know correlation is, is, is not causation, right? And so, really, what you need to do is kind of, you know, take a bunch of people and randomly assign them. Some people have more sex than others and then kind of see what happens, right? It's kind of like the, the idea, let's, let's put these sex challenges to a test, right? Those sex challenges were like, you know, every day for the next week, you have sex once a day, right? So seven days straight, um, you know, there's even like 30 day versions for the more ambitious and energetic. And so, you know, research actually pretty much did this study, where they randomly assigned some group had twice as much sex as you normally do. Other people, you know, just keep on keeping on with what you're already doing. And what they found was that the group that had more sex, they did worse at the end. 
right? It wasn't good for their relationship. And so we put too much emphasis on this thing that doesn't really matter. And you mentioned, you know, a previous guest, Amy Weez, she did, she did this research that basically found the magic number, and there is kind of a magic number for sexual frequency, is quite low. It's one, once a week, right? Simple. Like, it's, it's not that, you know, you can do it more, right? It's not bad for your relationship, but it's not like if once is good, five times is better. It, it, that's not how it works, right? And so as long as you're having once, that's good enough. And the, the nice thing is that that number, the magical number, kind of held, it held over different ages, held a bunch of other variables that they controlled for. It was still that same number the whole time, which, you know, I, I think a lot of times one is reasonable and it's, it's probably lower than people would have assumed, and it's also the average when you look at nationally representative sex surveys, you know, how often are people having sex? It's once a week on average. And you're right that what we do see in the research is that once a week is sort of where that optimal level of happiness is. And, you know, more isn't necessarily always better. It also doesn't mean that less than that is inherently worse because different people have different sex drives, different desires for sex. And so, you know, there are some couples where maybe they, have sex very infrequently, but they're very satisfied. And, you know, that's fine too. You know, different things as always work for different people. So, you know, just keep in mind for those of you listening, you know, we're talking about averages here. So, you know, you have to take the advice for what it is and, you know, customize it to your own sex life and so forth. Well, I think the other, the other really important point that kind of, I, I think probably gets into the sexual frequency thing is that, you know, sometimes people say sexual frequency, but really what they might mean is sexual quality and yeah. sexual satisfaction. And so those aren't one and the same. I mean, they're, they're more related, but they're not one and the same, but it's really a, a quality over quantity issue. And, you know, in one of the, the studies that, that I mentioned in the book focuses on, you know, what really led pe- to people having better relationships was, you know, having an expansive sexual repertoire. Right. And so, you know, that sounds fancy, but really what it meant is like, you know, basically just having more tricks up your sleeve or wherever else you keep your tricks. Right. But like you just having these novelty, interest, maybe challenge and excitement to, right. Having those kinds of experiences in your sex life, that's important. It's not how many times, but it's like, you know, how good is it? Right. Would you rather eat a really great meal from a Michelin star chef or, you know, have Taco Bell 10, 10 times in a week? Right. It's like, What's, what's better? Yeah, not Taco Bell. But yes, you know, so true that sometimes <laughs> we focus on the wrong thing. We want quality and quantity doesn't matter as much as we think when it comes to sex. Now, speaking of sex, pretty much everybody wants a hot partner, right? We see in surveys when people are asked about their desired traits in a romantic partner that physical attractiveness usually appears near the top of the list. However, you point to some research showing that having a hot partner or a partner who cares a lot about your physical attractiveness can actually produce a less stable relationship. And you say that instead of focusing so much on looks, maybe we should be paying more attention to personality instead. So can you tell us a little bit more about why you say that and why we might be overvaluing the role of attractiveness in a relationship? Sure. Attractiveness is the one thing you can know about another person when you know almost nothing else at all, right? You, you see them across the room, you see them you know, on a dating profile, and there's a ton of information. We can't help it. We process it in milliseconds and we judge it at just as quickly, right? And so it's unavoidable. Now, the problem is, 
if you base your relationship on physical things, chances are you're, you're banking on a dying industry in a lot of ways, because for a lot of people, they're currently as, as hot as they're going to be. Right. I mean, like aging, getting older doesn't bode well for physical attraction most of the time, right? Our attractiveness tends to decline over time. And so if you're really with your partner because they're super physically attractive, how's that going to work out in 10 years, 20, 30 years? Like, I mean, that it's just not going to work. And if your partner's basing their desire to be with you on your physical appearance, is that something, you know, that's a lot of pressure. And is that something you really want to have to maintain over time? And so we know that in, in, in relationships, you know, the, the partners that put more emphasis on physical features this way have more, have more problems. And so, you know, one of the things I suggest in that chapter is, is some of my own research looking at, you know, the importance of personality, right? We know personality is important, um, being similar, but just having appealing personality characteristics actually makes people more physically attractive, right? And so you see somebody who, let's say they're, they're a seven out of 10. But then you find out that they're smart, they're funny, they're kind. The research I've done shows that that person who was a seven now becomes an eight or a nine. I mean, they they get more physically attractive. Now, the great thing, which I I think is like one one of the best things I've ever found in my own research is it goes the other way too. Right. And this was, you know, I've had these experiences for sure. It's like you meet somebody and like they're a nine out of 10, like they're hot, but then you get to know them and they're like dumb, materialistic annoying, have weird political views. And all of a sudden that person who was a nine now is a four, right? And so, you know, personality goes a long way in terms of, you know, determining physical appearance, at least our ratings of that physical appearance. Yeah. And, you know, something else I'm thinking of that you talked about in your book is also how if you go for a partner who is really extraordinarily physically attractive, they might always have a lot more options than you do, right? And so there might be more threats to the relationship in that way because you'll have other people who are trying to poach your partner or who are flirting with them and 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 so forth. And so, you know, that's another thing to be to be mindful of there. So I, I think your advice is is really smart to not base the relationship entirely on looks. It's gotta be about something else. There has to be more substance there because you don't know how things are going to change, how your bodies are going to evolve over time. But if you've got some stable personality characteristic or trait, sense of humor, things that you're really attracted to, then you're always going to have things in common that can turn you on. Yeah, and we know from the research on you know online dating and those types of apps that people generally want a partner. They look for partners that are about 25% more attractive than they are. Right. And so some mm-hmm. of that, it's a lot of wishful thinking. Like, you know, of course I want to have the absolute best, but it, it's also a case of be careful what you wish for. Because as you point out, let's say you land that person, you're, you're a seven and you land that nine or 10, like you're thrilled at the moment, but you're also introducing a lot of turbulence into your relationship for all the reasons you mentioned, the poaching and the insecurities and the jealousy. And you know, we know that that's what happens. Those mismatched partners in those relationships they have more problems, right? It, it's not as stable as if sevens end up with seven, nines end up with nines, threes end up with threes. Those are much more stable relationships. 
Yeah. And since you mentioned that, I actually have a research project underway right now where we're looking at this idea of those discrepancies in consensually non-monogamous relationships and how that all plays out. And we have a lot of interesting hypotheses to test there. So looking forward to sharing the results of that sometime soon. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Never a dull moment in the Lay Miller Research Lab. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I want to talk about communication for a moment. You know, there's a lot of people who think that the less we argue, the better. So some people go to great lengths to avoid any type of argument or disagreement whatsoever. But you say that trying too hard to avoid conflict is actually a bad idea and it can create bigger problems and that we need to learn how to embrace disagreement in our relationships. So can you tell us why we need to be a little more open to the idea of conflict and why we shouldn't be constantly trying to avoid it at all costs? Sure. Yeah. I mean, and this is, this is one of the ones that I probably get more pushback on in terms of it being a myth than most of the other ones in the book is this idea of the less we argue, the better. Because so many people, you know, they find out I study relationships and, and they, they kind of want to just brag about like, oh, my partner and I, we never fight. Like, don't we have a good, they're kind of waiting for that like pat on the back or gold star. Like, yeah, you have a great relationship. And, and it's like, I can't do that because we know like the research shows over and over, people who believe that the less you argue, the better report lower relationship quality. Now people, when they avoid an argument on the day, they avoid the argument, they do feel better, right? It's like they dodge that little, you know, scuffle. The problem is it, it's a pay me now or pay me later kind of thing where it's like, you may avoid it that day. But we know the next day and after that, you feel worse, right? And so people, when you let things go over and over and over again, they start building up, right? And you can only be so magnanimous for so long before one small thing just becomes that thing that tips the whole card over that, you know, it's really not about not putting the cap on the toothpaste, but that was the last thing. And so, you know, one thing leads to the next, right? Our partner doesn't put the cap on the toothpaste. It reminds us of all the other things that they did that were inconsiderate, where they didn't help around the house or any of that. And it was, we call that kitchen thinking, right? We just start throwing all this stuff together. And then kitchen thinking turns into kitchen sinking, where one problem I suggest or mention to you now becomes another. And you sort of become the world's best lawyer where you just start barraging your partner with problem after problem after problem. And now as the person on the receiving end of that, what do you do, right? Even if you want to acknowledge your partner and help and do better, they just told you 10 things that you're doing wrong. You don't know which of the 10 to pick, much less like you're being attacked and then you get defensive. And now instead of it becoming about both of us working through some problem in our relationship, it's now me against you because I'm not going to go down without a fight. And so it just, it, it introduces all this contentiousness into the relationship. It's unnecessary. And so what I advocate for in in the book is a different approach, which is embrace those minor little skirmishes, right? Because two people who are independent, right? Who who are doing their own thing as adults, like you're going to disagree, particularly if you're living together. I mean, there's just an infinite number of things that just have like these minor little disagreements about. So have those, like get those out in the open versus kind of storing them up, storing them up and, you know, pretending you're being the bigger person, which we know ultimately doesn't work. You kind of harbor those things and they get in, you know, instead of having all these little minor skirmishes, you save them up and then you have this big battle. And, you know, those big battles can be threatening to a relationship. And so as much as you're avoiding those, those minor arguments, 
for the good of the relationship, you're trying to do the right thing, you're actually creating a more dangerous situation for your relationship. Yeah. And I would argue that if you're avoiding all the conflicts, you're also missing out on the potential benefits of makeup sex. <laughs> you know, when <laughs> sure. you have that that sort of excitation transfer that comes from, you know, that higher arousal in the conflict situation that can get carried over into the bedroom and can make sex more exciting. And I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of people say that makeup sex is the best sex because you're going in with this sort of heightened state of arousal. So yet another reason to not totally avoid <laughs> all conflict in your relationship. <laughs> sure. Now, one last question for you. Let's talk about breakup for a second. You talk about the importance of knowing when to call it quits in your relationship. But people are often afraid of ending their relationships, right? Because they see breakups as, okay, that's going to be really rough, really emotionally draining. There's a lot to lose in terms of the investments that they put in that relationship. But you say that ending a relationship probably won't be as bad as you think. So tell us why that is. Yeah, I mean, we're bad at predicting the future, right? I mean, it's, it's a standard human quality is that we're, we're just really bad at predicting how we're going to feel about things in the future. And we know this in, in lots of contexts, but we also know it specifically as it relates to breakup, where researchers asked a bunch of people who are currently in relationships and, and happy and everything was going great, like, hey, if if this thing was to end someday, like how would this make you feel? And they, they kind of made their predictions. And then the researchers did what researchers would do and they kind of tracked them over time and it's like kind of waited and like to break up. And then, you know, once they did break up, they had, well, how bad do you feel? Like, and then they compared it to how bad they actually felt when they broke up to their predictions about it. And what they found was people mispredicted. They, they thought it was going to be worse than it actually was. And now, I'm not saying that breakup is wonderful and it's, you know, the world's best experience by any stretch. What I'm saying is it's not as bad as you think it's going to be. And that's important because if you think you're kind of like catastrophizing how bad it's going to be, it keeps you in place. And if you're already thinking about breaking up, there's a chance your relationship isn't that great. And so planning on it being more awful than it's going to be might keep you in a relationship longer than it should. And it's something I say in, when I give talks and in class all the time is everybody deserves a great relationship. So if your relationship isn't helping you become a better person, then ending it might. And so you want to make sure you have those opportunities to go find that great relationship and sort of overselling how bad it's going to be when it ends can, can be doing more harm than, than good. Yeah, and that's an amazing point. I love the way that you put all of that. And just one more quick follow-up question on breakups, because I, I've seen the really incredible TED Talk you've given on moving on after a breakup. So what is your best piece of advice based on the research for people who are going through a breakup and it is really rough in terms of moving on and getting their life back on track quicker? Yeah, I, I think, you know, Every breakup is rough in, in, in one way or the other. But, you know, I also talk a lot about in the book, like no experience is 100%. Right? So even in the world, what seems like the world's worst breakup, there are good things. You just have to know to look for them. And so you want to sort of go about it intentionally and really look for those good things because they're there. They might only be, you know, one or two things, but they're there. Like it might be more time to spend with your friends, more time to spend with your family, more freedom, more options. It could be, you know, lots of different things. But those good things are there. The other thing is, you know, one of the things I, I talk about in the TED Talk is this idea of rediscovery of the self. And so 
had done a study and actually thought that, you know, doing new and interesting things was going to be the way to help people get over breakup. And it turned out it wasn't new and interesting things that were the best. It was this idea of doing something you used to like doing that the relationship prevented you from doing, right? It's like, so it might be a hobby you gave up, an interest you kind of minimized or, or you know, put on the, on the back burner, you know, while you were in your relationship, but kind of getting back to those things that you were doing before your relationship or that you kind of stifled because of your relationship help you kind of rediscover the person that you were outside of that relationship and kind of get back to the person that you are. And it's, it's sort of like a, a process of like reclaiming your identity. And so there's always going to be opportunity for that. The, the real benefit of those activities too is like, unlike some of the new activities where people thought like, hey, you know what I'm going to do is I want to go horseback riding because that's going to be really new and exciting. That can go wrong, right? But if it's a rediscovery activity, it's something you already know it's going to be good because you, are, you used to like it before, so you're going to like it again. Yeah, love that advice. Thank you so much for sharing that and for bringing all of your wisdom. It was really a pleasure to have you here. So can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and to get a copy of your new book? Sure. The best place to learn about me and, and the book is on my website, www.garylewandowski.com. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at Lewandowski PhD. Great. Thanks for your time. I really appreciate having you here. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of the podcast, you can visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the podcast. You can also follow me on the social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Miller and Instagram at Justin J. Miller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want, and Gary's book, Stronger Than You Think. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. 